Genesis. It's a few years since uh, I made a good study or went through a study in the book of Genesis. And I thought we might share some thoughts. Now, I don't propose to go verse by verse, and I don't propose to get into the great discussion of evolution versus creation, but I thought we might spend some profitable time discovering some of the doctrines that Genesis reveal and share with us. Satan has always been very active and many of us in our congregation and in other congregations we seem to get negligent. We, we, we stop thinking that old Satan's on the warpath. Now I want to re-emphasize just for a moment or two that Satan's not just on the warpath He's jolly active. However, greater is he that is in you, and I will keep on saying that to myself and to you, and as long as I live, to whoever will listen, greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. And 1 John 4, 4 is so powerful and so mighty in the days in which we live. But let's just look for a few moments at, this, at Genesis 3, verses 7 through 13. Now, well, we'd better start from verse 1, I guess. Then we'll get the whole picture and be reminded of it. The whole picture is this. Verse 1 of chapter 3 of Genesis. The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, Hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, uh, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also to her, to her husband with her. And he did eat, and the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord, walk, of the Lord God, walking in the garden, in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, Who told thee? that thou wast naked. Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be, to be with me, she gave me of the tree, 
and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Now, the story is familiar. The end is tragic. We know the beginning and we know the end. We know the whole thing. But if you go into Micah 7.17, you discover that the serpent found desperate degradation. Later on in this chapter, you hear God saying to the serpent, no longer will you be as beautiful as you have been. You will crawl upon your belly and you will be a creature that crawls around upon its belly and you'll eat dust. You'll never be anything that gets further off the ground and your food will be in the dust. You'll discover, if you turn the pages into John and chapter 16, 21, that the woman has nothing but sorrow. And later on in this chapter of the third chapter of Genesis, you discover how it is that the women shall have, have sorrow in childbearing. God says to women, now the reason you're going to be sorrowful in childbearing is because of sin. It's an interesting thing that we have been able to overcome most pain. But the worst pain I suppose we all have is when we anticipate pain. When we anticipate that the dentist is going to hurt us, when we anticipate that the ear, nose and throat man is going to hurt us when he probes around inside our ears, when we anticipate pain. Yet a woman will anticipate, for she knows that she will have pain in childbearing, and we forget, with all our cover-ups of pain, that God said, because of sin, lady, you will suffer pain when you bear children. We're not told and we don't know. And we have no real idea of how God would have caused children to come into this world without pain. We have no knowledge of that. No children were born prior to this experience that goes on between Adam Eve, the serpent, and God. In another scripture, in, the, in Job, I think it is, and verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 8, in Colossians, or let me see, yes, Colossians 1, um, we discover how it is that man shall, shall suffer by the sweat of his brow. No longer will he enjoy walking in the garden with God in an ordinary friend-to-friend -friend basis. No longer will he enjoy being the ruler over all the animals that God has created. In fact, the lion roars and I run. The horse kicks and I hurt. The mosquito stings and I get a bump. The bee stings and I'm poisoned. No longer do I say to the lion, hey, come on, pretty pussy. I reduce that to a cat, domestic, neutered, and declawed, and that's my pussy, and that's my little friend. No longer can I walk up to an elephant and say, elephant, do as I say. 
for fear he treads on me and I do as he says. Squelch. It's an interesting thing. But God said because he made us in his image, we would have command over all the animals. I remember once swimming off the coast of Wales. I have always been terrified of sharks and I've always been terrified of sea creatures that I couldn't see because I was always one of those that when I swam underwater I kept my eyes fixed shut for fear the salt would make them sting or the chloride would make them sting. So I've, ne I've been a sissy all my life underwater and, and uh, I still can't open my eyes with ease underwater. I have to, it's a great mental uh, argument goes on. You may open your eyes. No, you may not. Yes, you may. And I have this argument while I'm swimming. By that time I've run out of breath and I come up and open my eyes. And I've solved my little problem. But I was swimming off the coast and I was a way out, a good way out. And suddenly, nearby, I saw a, what seemed to me at least to be a dorsal fin cutting through the water. Now only once in a in three or four millenniums do we ever see sharks in the, in, in the Irish Sea. It's too cold, we're told very confidently by people that never wet their toes, that they never come there. But I saw that fin, and I don't care what anybody says, as far as I was concerned, jaws one, two, three, four, and five were happening. And I was on my way to the shore. I've never swum so fast in all my life. Then a great long slippery, slithery thing went zipping past me. Ooh, I was petrified. I still kept swimming. And then he did it again. And then one went over the top of me. And I swam and I swear that when I hit the beach I was still swimming. Maybe I was a half a mile out but I swam four miles that day. And the, three and the last three and a half miles were murder. They were all on dry land. It was dreadful. I was so frightened, very frightened. It wasn't, by the way, a shark. It was a porpoise. Two, three, or two or three hundred, I don't know how many. All I needed was one. <clears throat> that scared me. To think that if man had not sinned, disobeyed God, I could have said, hey porpoise, give me a lift. And I'd have got a tow, or a lift a ride, whatever, tow in T-O-W. A lot of things could have happened if man had not sinned. How kind it would have been and that animal would have understood my vocabulary. Had it been a shark and it had only swum in waters way distant and far yonder, and now ended up in England and it wasn't used to the English language, how would I speak to it? But prior to the fall, prior to sin, I could have spoken to that beast and he'd have understood. We'd have communicated in other words. I want to leave with you tonight, especially from verse 9. Three words. Where art thou? Where art thou? Now the results of sin are evident. They're all in front of us. There is difficulty in childbirth. Man's, man is now submissive to the animals. The roles are reversed. 
Instead of ruling over the animals, they rule him. We discover thorns in what otherwise are beautiful flowers. We discover things like poison oak, and there's a whole batch of people in our church suffering from great bumps and suppurating masses that are all, I'm told, called poisoned oak. There are all kinds of things, including illness, including decay, and ending in death, which then introduces hell and heaven. So something happened that was diametrically opposed to God's plan. And his plan was not that we should suffer. He says through Isaiah, Comfort ye, comfort ye, comfort ye my people. He says through the Lord Jesus that he will comfort his people. And Jesus tells us over and over again that he will send you a comforter. We will be comforted. But Eve shows us seven lessons. And I want to share with you these seven lessons. Then I want us to look at the skillful interrogation of Satan. And then if there's time, we'll see the six results of sin. First of all, I believe that Eve shows us what to avoid. Notice, she had a habit of loitering in the realm of temptation. And this is the first thing that Eve did. She was told, leave that thing alone. Now curiosity killed the cat and satisfaction brought it back. But the unfortunate thing is that some of us have an overabundance of curiosity and we cannot let a thing go. And lots of ladies are in that category. And Eve was the first, obviously. And she loitered where she could see the fruit that she was not supposed to touch. She loitered in an area where she could be interviewed by Satan. She loitered. She hung around. A curious object lesson is this. For lots of our young men and women will loiter where there is danger. My parents tell me, or told me, our house, I remember it clearly, was an old Victorian house, four stories high, and it was terraced, or was like a condominium in this country. And the, the end house was down at one end of the street, and the other end house was at the other end of the street, and there, I suppose there must have been 80 or 90, maybe more houses in that string of houses. Behind our house was a small yard, or garden, Behind that was a large wall that was about 14 feet high, I expect. And behind that was a stretch of land, not very wide, and behind that were several railway lines. And as a boy, for those of you who remember the steam engine, you won't remember that, only if you read about it in books. But the, most of these are older, like me. And, and those of you that remember the steam engine, the Royal Scot and the Flying Scotsman roared past the end of our, our garden or yard. As a lad, I used to go out and watch him. And I'd 
not sure that I remember in detail why I had such an insatiable appetite for steam trains. I used to stand on the bridge and try to drop things down their funnels as they went underneath. That was very good. I always missed, I think, because one man said that I managed to hit him. He was in shoveling coal in, and I hit him, I gather, and he complained, and the policeman came by. I was only five or six at the time. But such was my curiosity, I'm told, that I went down on the track. Now, I really remember being on that track. And my mother looked out of the window and saw it was me on the track. Well, all I wanted was a closer look of the train as it went by. Very nearly saw the underside of it, as I understand it. And several people came to my rescue. My dad told me the story years later. I remember bits of it, but he told me the story later. I think the thing I remember is I couldn't sit down for a long time. And the story he told was, he, he would say, son, you had, even in those days, you had an insatiable curiosity. You always get into trouble because you wanted to find out. I wanted to find out what it was like to do a Tarzan act off trees. You know what I discovered? The branches didn't swing like they did at Hollywood. They broke before they swung. I've forgotten how far I fell, but it hurt. I had a curiosity about many things. Now, you remember your curiosity. It got you into lots of trouble. I wanted to know what bombing was like. My parents were out. This is in the same house, and I remember this quite clearly. I wanted to amalgamate for some curious reason that I have no honest description of or for or explanation for. I wanted to somehow amalgamate the wickedness of the uh, of the Egyptian slave masters and the unfortunate problem of the Israelites with bombing. And so my parents had these Ming Dynasty jars. There were two of them. And they were placed each side of the mantelpiece over the fireplace. So my brother was the slave and I was the Egyptian. Now I remember that. And I remember using a belt. And it was a great excuse to thrash him with a belt. And he had to carry these on, on his back up the stairs, over the landing and up the stairs and up the next one until we got right up to the attic. My great aunt, was sitting, crocheting, crocheting, as I understand it, and she saw something flash past the window, and then bang. And she went to the window to see what was falling, and psh, there went the next one. And bang. And she locked me in my room, and wouldn't let, give the key to my mother until the next morning. My mother was so furious when she came home to discover that her beautiful Ming Dynasty jars that were worth a lot of money, I gather, were now in fragmented pieces downstairs. The slave had carried them upstairs, the slave master had bombed the cat, I suppose, down in the yard. My curiosity! Did it ever get you into trouble? Of course it did! We inherited it from Eve. She loitered. We loiter where we can get into trouble. We seldom loiter where we can be blessed. That's a fact.
The second thing about Eve is this. She listened to the slanderous suggestions of the tempter. Now one of the greatest problems we all have is we don't reckon that Satan is alive and well. We don't agree with many people that say that there are demons and that there are spirits, but there are. And we don't like to get into a discussion about what Satan can and cannot do. And we don't know sometimes how to explain why God allows Satan to do certain things. There are many things that we don't really understand and we listen to Satan. Only turn your television on and watch it willy-nilly and you will quickly discover that you've been listening to Satan. We listen to the slanderous suggestions that he makes. Look at the expression here in the scripture that we have in front of us. Did God say this? That's slanderous to say, did God, to question that God said. Most people that sin, that are Christians, don't believe the word of God. We don't believe God about a lot of things else this place tonight would be full. God says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. But we do. God says, don't get all worked up in the assembly because different ones disagree. But we do. God says, don't murmur against the leadership. But we do. God says, don't gossip about one another. But we do. And so one can go on and on and on. We listen to Satan. <clears throat> and we don't have to listen too well. See, what old Satan wants you to do is come up with a list. He wants you to be a legalistic Christian. He doesn't want you to be somebody that wants to be holy. He doesn't want you to be somebody who craves for purity. He doesn't want you to be somebody who wants to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He wants you to be somebody who says, I mustn't smoke, I mustn't drink, I mustn't dance, and I mustn't say nasty things. I ought to go to church once in a while, or once on a Sunday. That's what he wants. And if you're that sort of Christian, Satan will leave you alone. He won't even bother with you. He won't have to. Because at any time, he can attack you and win. I've said it often, the only time I fight is when I'm going to win. And the only reason I would fight is so that I can win. There's no point in fighting otherwise. You get hurt, and you come away with too many wounds. It hurts. But if you're going to fight, make sure you win. Now here's how you do it. The first thing, you don't fight on another man's property. You come home. And encourage him to come onto a piece of land you know very well. Now that can be metaphoric or literal, but make sure he comes and fights on your terms. If you fight on his, you'll lose. You might win a battle, you'll lose the war. But if he comes to you, then you win. You know the way. The Afghanistans, the Soviet army is not settled in Afghanistan yet. 
And it won't be, because those Afghanistans know the terrain, and the, the Soviets have gone into their country. Satan doesn't have to worry if you're one of these Christians that's got everything worked out, because he knows you haven't. And if you're one of these people that could care less about becoming a person filled with the power and the might and the splendor and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, why, if you're not one of those, why should he worry with you? Any time he likes, he can pick you off. Like a sniper in a tower that has a commanding view of everybody that's coming by. The only time Satan's worried about you is when you're found on your knees and you're, and you're crying before God. This lady listened to the slanderous attitudes of the tempter. Notice the next thing. She lessened her faith in a, in a way that was dreadful. She believed what he said. Did God say, you shall surely die? God does know that in the very day ye eat thereof, then your eyes will be opened. Ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now it's important that you see that verse 4 and 5. For the serpent is talking, and she lessened her faith in, the, in verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Now there's a good excuse. When the tree is good for food, well, she was the woman and she was the one that got to cook. She was the one that got to prepare. When she saw that it was good for the food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, there are three things that you'll see in this verse that are run absolutely parallel with 1 John 2 verses 15 through 17. There are three things, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and the lust of the eyes. And they're all in this verse. We have not changed. Verse 6 here and 1 John 2 15 through 17 tell us exactly the same thing, only in a different way. And you will discover this woman lessened her commitment to the Lord by listening and looking and trying and seeking to please herself. And then she let down the standard where the word of God was the rule of faith and practice. Up to this time, she knew that God said, if you eat, thou shalt surely die. Will he let you die? And so she deliberately turned away or let down the standard. Now it's very unfortunate, but we bring standards that aren't scriptural to our children. We bring standards that are not scriptural to our teenagers. And one of the things we desperately need to do is to bring God's standard. There is much talk in the day in which we live of bringing God's standards in. There is a book that maybe you should read or try to get a copy of, I Talked With Spirits, by Victor Ernest, who was a pastor, conservative Baptist pastor. 
in several churches, most of them in Oregon. It's a superb book. During his writing of that book, we discover some things about him. First of all, he talked with the evil spirits, having been a medium himself. And then he was converted. And then he became a minister of the gospel. And then he becomes confronted continually by spirits over a period of many years. And he confronts and fights. You and I must make sure the standard we hold and the practice we practice is high. Is high. It must be biblical. It must not be of our own making. It must be in the scriptures. It must not be in our own code of ethics. If you're an ethical Christian, my dear friend, you may as well be just anything. You may as well be a Buddhist. For you're as far away from Christ as any Buddhist. You're as far away from Christ as any Hindu. You're as far away from Christ as any Muslim. If all of your spirituality, if your Christianity, it can only be added up in ethics. Notice the next thing. She looked at that which was prohibited. Now, in verse 6, we read, When the woman saw, she deliberately looked and took an inventory of what she was looking at. And all of us, when we sin, all of us, when we come short of the glory of God, the problem with the Christian is this, that the Christian deliberately chooses to sin. The non-Christian, the sinner, the person that is without grace, he just naturally stumbles over chunks of sin and gets very involved in sin. But like this woman, the Christian looks and he makes a calculated calculation. He calculates. Can I get away with it? Will it work? And he looks at it real hard and gets involved in it. Notice she looked at that which was prohibited. And then we discover she lusted for that which was forbidden. And we get down into this verse 6 and start defining it and pulling it apart. You suddenly discover and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit. When she was going to be wise, and when she was going to be like God, and when she was going to eat of what was prohibited, now she lusts. In James, James says this, he says, sin that is conceived becomes a lust. And we tear after it then and we can't stop ourselves. Lust is rather like the coal that is put into a steam engine. To, use, to go back to steam trains, you put the coal in and you keep stoking it. And if you've, ever, if you've ever stoked a steam engine, you know that you can overstoke. That is, you can build up such a head of steam that you have to pull the release valve to let off steam. And that's where the expression comes, oh, he's just letting off steam. He pull a release valve so that the head of steam won't burst the boiler and so that the head of steam will be usable and not have too much power. My dad, if he was here, would tell you that Mr. Stevenson, who invented the rocket, which was the first steam engine in all the world, 
was related to us. And he was. We got all the papers. My dad got all the papers to prove it. In that, my great-great-grandfather was part of the one of the architects of the rocket, the first steam engine. And as a child, I would be taken into museum after museum. I was ter terribly bored. I hated steam engines right from that moment. And how you could get ahead of steam. You keep on stoking it in. So one day when I was a youngster and we had to stoke a steam engine to prove a point, I stoked it good and well. Even when they told me that was enough, I kept shoveling the, the coal in there. Then I shut the door. And I was asked by, a, by an adult, is there enough coal in? Oh yes, said I, there's enough coal. Actually, there was no room at all to get anything else in. I'd stuck so much coal in. But coal takes a while to burn, and the heat builds up. And if you're not there at that safety valve, psh, goes, the, goes the steam and the whole thing can go bang. They stopped it going bang because they found the safety valve in time, but I'd really worked hard. <laughs> Nearly wrecked their wretched engine. It was a stationary engine that drove a lot of machinery, and I was so bored, I wanted to blow it up. I must be truthful. But see, when you lust, it's like building up a head of steam. You just keep shoveling it in and shoveling it in. And then later, it catches you. And suddenly you've got too much. And Satan loves to do that with fire. We talk about being burned. We talk about sin burning. Sin is like lust. Lust takes over. We burn. If we're without Christ, we'll burn. And if we're not in Christ, we die. Now notice Satan's careful and very skillful, skillful interrogation. It's an interesting discussion as we go along in this portion of Scripture. Satan deliberately envelops Eve in the skillful interrogation. It's a way of getting a person into error. First it's a beckon, then it's a hand reaching out, then it's a handhold, then it's a pull, then it's an embrace, and then it's an absolute submergence of oneself in sinfulness. Satan is very skillful. Here are five things. He throws her off her guard by assumed ignorance. When you appeal to a person's intelligence or knowledge, you assume an ignorance. And people want to help. I remember listening to an insurance man saying how he got people interested in his insurance. He would go to a person and say, could you help me? And his analogy was this, the majority of people want to help and be helpful. And so they would say, well, if I can, I will. And his next question would be, if you were going to insure yourself, what sort of insurance do you think would be the wisest to buy? And if the person didn't know, they would say, well, I have no idea. And if they did know, they would try to show him how much they knew, and then he would engage them in conversation, and he said that nearly every time he used this method, he could sell insurance. He appealed to the ignorance 
He feigned ignorance and appealed to a knowledge that was yet ignorant. Notice it. It's important. For Satan says here, did God say that? Or in the vernacular of our day, are you sure? Did God say it? Are you sure? The answer has to be, well, yes. Have you ever been caught on this one? It's in the Bible. And the person that you say it to says, where? And you can't remember. And the inference they leave you with is, you weren't telling me the truth. You weren't truthful, were you? You couldn't find it, could you? Well, you say, I know it's somewhere. It just escapes me right now. Uh, it's somewhere in... It, 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 well, um, uh, just give me time. And they leave and you haven't found it. Ever been there? It's a miserable place to be. And Satan was very skillful in the in introduction of his interrogation. Notice the second thing that he does. He, he stirred up the vanity of the depths of this woman. She became very self-conscious by giving her the opportunity to correct and to instruct him. She became very self-assertive. Oh yes, God did say that. And he was very careful to just envelop her. One ten tentacle went out and then the other went out he first of all moved and threw her off a guard and then he managed to somehow stir up her vanity. Oh, Satan's good at this. Notice how he works in, in Judas Iscariot. Judas was one of the twelve and yet Satan was able to stir up in his heart a vanity. He held the purse and he thought he held the power. He thought he was very clever. He held the power. But he didn't. And in the third instance, notice this. He uses the term Elohim, not Jehovah. He uses the word, did Elohim say? Hath Elohim said? Hath a God said? He didn't say, Hath the God, Yahweh, as he said. He said, Did a God say? Did Elohim say? In the Hebrew. It's an interesting thing as you look back, you discover Elohim being used. Did God, not divine, did God say? Did Caesar say? It could have been in the New Testament. Notice also, please, for it's important when he gets to that point, he is not talking of the Creator. He is not talking of someone who is right here now. He is talking of someone distant and vague and a long way off. He's not talking of somebody right here, right now. 
In the fourth instant, you discover this. He puts a doubt as to whether God had really uttered the prohibition and he hints at the possibility of Eve not hearing correctly. Did God say this? Or did Adam tell you about it? Are you sure you've got it all right? Notice how Satan will come to you. Does the Bible say this? Did you really give your heart to Jesus? Are you sure about your salvation? Are you positive of what God is doing in your life? It's a good way for gradually another tentacle is wrapped around the person and they're drawn nearer to Satan. You ever watched a, a spider with his web? And he'll just sit there on the end of the web watching and suddenly a fly spins into his web. That spider moves at lightning speed and he whips himself around and around that little fly, wraps it up so tightly, stores it up for another meal later on. That's his cold storage. So Satan has got one more tentacle to wrap round. He ins insinuates the blasphem blasphemous thought that harshness is in God. God doesn't want you to be like he is. You shall be as gods, he says. You shall be as Elohim. And so she eats. He insinuates a very blasphemous thing. It's a terrifying thing. In Genesis 3, verses 17 through 13, we see six movements, and it shows us the results of sin. Look at these results. They're fascinating and terrifying. The first is shame. They had an awakened conscience. Do you realize that Adam and Eve had no conscience? They had no need of one? There is an interesting thing that some have speculated that they had no blood in their body at this time. I'm not going to get into the discussion. I'll simply lay it in front of you. It is a discussion that has gone on with theologians and Bible scholars for many years. But it is said that they had no blood, therefore they had no skin. For they had no need of skin to hold the blood in. But it was because of sin that we had blood and therefore skin. So that our bodies at this point prior to the fall, were very different to the bodies we now see. And some have speculated that in this wise, we were, they, were, they were in the image of God, and therefore now we are not in the image of God, because if you extract the blood from us, we're dead. And the life is in the blood. Without blood, you're nothing. And when you die, the blood ceases to take round its life-giving ingredient to discover that Jesus was dead. They plunged a spear into, his, into the chest cavity to discover blood and water flowing out, which was evidence of his death. <clears throat> and because now we have blood, it's by the shedding of blood. And it's to remind us, so the discussion goes, that we need blood to save us from sin and to save us from a lost eternity. So God gave us blood. But shame, they were uncovered, they were naked, and they suddenly knew the difference between man and woman as a shame. 
and they were embarrassed that God would see them naked. It's interesting how God comes to their aid and God slays animals and takes animal skins and makes them to be able to wear clothes. It's interesting that shame, as a result of sin, shame entered and the only way to cover shame was the slaying of an animal, the shedding of blood to cover shame. Right at the very beginning then of Genesis, we learn that without the shedding of blood there is no covering. There is no remission. There is no covering for sin. Notice the second thing. Not only was there shame, but a covering was necessary. I've already expressed it. But notice that man went for a bloodless covering. He went to the fig leaf. And he sewed fig leaves together. But God killed an animal and gave him a blood covering. Man went to the fig leaf. God went to the animal. It's interesting. Man will avoid the blood. He will avoid God's, God's expression of the necessity of the spilling of blood to cover his sin. And so he avoids the blood today. Notice the third thing. There was fear. They were frightened that God would find them and frightened that God would discover them. So they hid themselves from the guilty conscience they had fear. And the only reason we have fear, be it even of animals, the only reason we have fear is because our conscience is not right. Notice the fourth thing. There was concealment. They hid. Where art thou, says God? Where are you? Admit that you are concealing yourself. And we hide ourselves from God because of sin. Over and over in the scripture, we find people hiding because of sin. Lying is a method of hiding. Pretense is a method of hiding. Deceit is a method of hiding. Talking about another's problem rather than your own problem. Trying to conceal. God says, where art thou? Notice, will you? in the fifth instant, that there was a, a self-induced attitude. They tried to justify themselves. The man said, the woman made me do it. The woman said, the serpent made me do it. And the serpent mocked. And this is something we can't somehow get over to the whole world. Satan mocks those that are foolish enough to follow him. And they tried to justify themselves. Notice, there was the shifting of the blame. The shifting, it wasn't my fault. It was theirs. It was his, it was hers. The shifting of the blame is a tragic thing. They were separated from God. They were separated from the garden. And so they had to go from the garden. And it's an interesting fact that the Lord Jesus had to go to a garden to pray for us that we might come back into the presence of God. They were sent from the garden. Jesus went into the garden to bring us to God. Wherever Eden was, we know where Gethsemane is. 
and Jesus went into the garden of Gethsemane to sweat, as it were, drops of blood. It was at the garden that the first blood was shed so that we could have a covering for our shame. And Jesus in the garden sweat, as it were, drops of blood that we might learn that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in that blood, in that garden experience, would not be as Adam and Eve perishing, but have everlasting life. Let's bow in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for the word, and thank you for reminding us of our privilege before thee, Thank you, Lord, for being in that place where we can rejoice in thee. Thank you, Father, for causing us to know that the blood of Jesus is shed and we have life in his blood, not in ours, and not the blood of beasts that were slain on Jewish altars could attain for us but the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Oh, Father, we thank Thee. And we ask that we might recognize that we're not in Thine image this day, but we're in the image of the fallen man. Oh, Lord, but even though we bear only a slight resemblance to Thee, we thank Thee that being born again, being changed into the image of God, we can be right with God. Bless now each one, for Jesus' sake we pray it. Amen.